Hello and welcome to Sixth Sense for July 17th, 2020. No eulogies, it's time to be proactive about community journalism. Memory's a funny thing. As I get older, I become more accustomed to the idea that our memories are just a compilation of key moments. I may have spent 13 years in one place, but my memory of that time is distilled down to an assortment of memorable moments over the course of those years. One such memory that stands out in my mind is from the summer of 1992. I'm leaning up against the backstop at a baseball field at Kerr Park in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, poised with my notebook and tape recorder at the ready to interview players and coaches post-game. When a little kid says to his mom, that's the man from the last game. I think it always stuck in my mind because it may have been the first time anyone referred to me as a man. In my mind, I was some dopey kid working the summer away between his sophomore and junior years of college. It was my second year working in a two-man sports department at a small daily based out of Coatesville. I took the job because it was the closest I could get at the time to covering sports in a professional capacity. I had a sink or swim moment my second day. After a particularly putrid story, the sports editor called me and asked, can you do this job? It was just the kick in the keister I needed. I buckled down from that moment on and I was hooked. My goal had always been to become a sportscaster, but by the end of that first summer, I changed my major to print. That summer's long gone, that newspaper's long gone too. But I suppose the memory is been on my mind lately because of stories tied to two other newspapers where I spent a sizable portion of my career. The first ran on the front page of the New York Times, titled, The Last Reporter in Town Had One Big Question for His Rich Boss. The subhead says it all. His newspaper is withered under a hedge fund. His industry was in turmoil even before a pandemic, but Evan Brandt won't stop chronicling his town. Evan and I were colleagues when I worked at the Mercury in the late 1990s and remain friends to this day. Back then, it was a bustling operation, and I have many fond memories of working in that newsroom. I won't give all of Dan Barry's work away for free, because he's an amazing writer who deserves to be read, but suffice to say, that newsroom no longer exists in a physical sense. Quick aside, Shout out to Haruka Sakaguchi for her top-notch photography in the piece. Evan works out of his attic office now, along three stories up his old Pottstown home. And I should know, I helped move filing cabinets and boxes of paper up to that office all those years ago. If you want to understand what's happening at local newspapers today, if you feel your local paper's not up to the standards you might remember, Read this story because this is what's happening all over the country. Penelope Muse Abernathy, Night Chair in Journalism and Digital Media Economics, is the author of The Expanding News Desert, which is produced by the Center of Innovation and Sustainability in Local Media at the School of Media and Journalism at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It notes that 70 dailies and more than 2,000 weeklies or non-dailies have disappeared in the U.S. since 2004. The result, more than 200 of the nation's 3,143 counties and equivalents have no newspaper or alternative source of credible and comprehensive information on critical issues. 
Half of those have only one newspaper, and it's typically a weekly. Those places are considered news deserts. Coronavirus economics have only exacerbated the situation. The Pointer Institute for Media Studies, a nonprofit journalism school and research organization, keeps a running tally of newsroom layoffs, furloughs, and closures caused by the coronavirus, and is worthy reading. The second story on my radar is the proposal by the Department of Defense to cut all funding to Stars and Stripes, the newspaper that provides independent news and information, both from home and about the military, to the U.S. military community. This includes service members, contractors, DOD civilians, veterans, and families. What makes Stars and Stripes unique among DOD news outlets is its editorial independence, guaranteed by the First Amendment relationship that has been backed by Congress and the courts on several occasions. DoD claims it wants to reinvest the $15.5 million per year into functions it considers more critical to warfighting. According to Marine Lieutenant Colonel Chris Logan, as quoted in the report in Stars and Stripes on the decision, Stripes Ombudsman Ernie Gates said that would be a fatal cut. Considering the DOD's $705 billion budget, I tend to agree with Stars and Stripes editorial director Terry Leonard, who was quoted by the Washington Post as calling Stripes funding decimal dust. The same article quoted the Pentagon's acting comptroller, Elaine McCusker, as saying the newspaper is probably not the best way to we communicate any longer. While trends do point to the decline of newspapers, that ignores some key points. One, Stars and Stripes has a robust digital product. Two, even with improvements over the last two wars, there are still many places where digital access is nil and a printed paper is necessary. And three, it isn't the role of Stars and Stripes to communicate message for the DoD. It is part of Stripes' role to independently analyze that message. And it's no surprise that an administration that seems to view any media funded by the government that should be on message, see Voice of America, finds itself at odds with that mission. Objective reporting on the military is certainly a big part of Stripe's mission, but it also is community journalism, sports, schools, life. And that's a news desert with a global reach. The point of all this isn't an, oh, woe is me. I've been shouting from the mountaintops for years to anyone who would listen about what is happening in this industry. That bird, frankly, has flown. But I firmly believe nature abhors a vacuum. Thinking back to my early days covering local sports, social media can't replace the thrill of seeing your kid's picture in the paper or their name mentioned for sparking a rally in an important game. You can't frame it and put it on a wall. People still want to know what's happening around town this weekend. They want to hear stories about their neighbors doing good for the community or those who are in need. They still want someone to break down what happened at the school board or county commissioner's meeting. They can't attend because they work or have to run the kids to a concert or practice. And communities will continue to rely on the watchdog role local journalists play in ensuring their elected officials aren't lining their pockets with taxpayer money. The Washington Post has a slogan, democracy dies in darkness. Whatever you may think of the Post, the statement is true. 
Statistics show that in the news deserts, the price of governance inevitably increases. Residents go uninformed. Community is lost. Something must fill that space. Finding a business model that works, that makes up for the shortfalls from the loss of advertising, and particularly classifieds, is the challenge. So my plea is when the opportunity arises to support community journalism, whatever form it may take in the future, support it, advertise, invest, subscribe, whatever it takes. If you are in a position to create a workable platform, do so. In the end, we all benefit. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to check out my website, cd6.com. Sign up for newsletters, keep up with the latest writing and podcasts, and check out what's making news on my radar. Thanks for listening. <laughs>